recently, it's been fascinating to learn about the unusual aspects of Israel's democracy as it conducts a general election at a moment of simmering international crisis. For a start, it is the only parliamentary democracy I know, wherein just because you lead the largest party in Parliament after a general election, that does not mean you automatically become Prime Minister. It's a point worth remembering, as everyone assumes that Benjamin Netanyahu will automatically carry on as Prime Minister and also be the next one. He probably will be, but the Israeli system is such that conceivably he might not be. Leadership of Israel goes to the politician who stands the best chance of creating and sustaining a governing coalition from among numerous parties. If some party leaders recognize and conclude that Netanyahu's recent bout of demagoguery has made him something of a liability as far as some key security partners of Israel are concerned, notably the United States, then it would be perfectly consistent with Israeli democracy for them, together with the president of Israel, to look elsewhere for a less abrasive leader who could bring a coalition of parties together and therefore become prime minister. That's not certain, but given the Israeli system, it is possible. For now, it would seem that many Israelis still regard Netanyahu's abrasive demagoguery as a plus, so far at least. But many worry about the damage done to Israel's key security relationship by Netanyahu siding with the Republican opposition to the Obama administration. This weekend, House Speaker John Boehner will be given the equivalent of a head of state welcome to Israel by Netanyahu. But this is a reminder of another unique aspect of Israel's democracy. In the 67 years since Israel was founded on May the 14th, 1948, no single political party has ever won a majority in a general election. And it's a pretty safe bet that none ever will. This is because Israel's political structure does not consist of 120 geographic constituencies through which a wave of political emotion might lead to a party obtaining a clear-cut parliamentary majority in its own right. This leads to perhaps the most important aspect of Israel's political uniqueness. There is only one constituency. The Knesset is the national parliament, but there are no MKs, members of the Knesset, who represent various geographic constituencies. The Knesset itself is the sole constituency in the nation which elects the 120 MKs. Israelis vote for political parties which usually make a national pitch for votes rather than concentrating on the local concerns of constituencies. You can become a member of the Knesset because of your standing in a political party and because of that party's standing in the national constituency. That standing is measured by the numbers of votes won by a party in a general election and its ability to exceed the national threshold. For many years, the threshold has been set at 2% of all votes cast in an election. A party can only win seats if it gains more than 2% of the total vote. But for this latest general election, the threshold was raised so that a political party had to receive at least 3.25% of all votes cast. 
25 political parties vied for voter approval, but only 10 political parties exceeded that 3.25% threshold, thereby qualifying for proportional representation according to their total vote. 15 political parties, among them the Pirate Party of Israel, Hope for Change, Living with Dignity, and Democratura, altogether secured 4.53% of the total vote. There is no preferential voting in Israel, so these votes were all set aside. Since it has been widely reported that Benjamin Netanyahu and his Likud political party won this election, it's important to note what precisely this means in the context of the Israeli political system. Likud, led by Netanyahu, received 23.40% of all votes cast, as a result of which they were awarded 30 seats, exactly one quarter of all the Knesset seats. Yet so far he has not won the election. Likud still has to gain the support of at least another 31 seats in order to obtain a Knesset majority. This is why voters in Israel usually have to wait three, four weeks, maybe more, before they can learn which political parties will be forming the next government. The next two winners in the March the 17th election could have given Netanyahu a Knesset majority, but they are extremely unlikely to do so. The fourth and fifth parties on the winners' list did not win enough seats to put Likud and Netanyahu over the top, since Likud would have only gained 59 seats. Netanyahu would still have needed to look for a sixth coalition partner before attaining a majority of at least 61 seats. Now, this is to assume that post-election manoeuvres are simply numerical, which is not, of course, the case. The coalition building is always complicated by party differences, over-outlook, ideology and policy. It is also to assume that every party is a cohesive, unified whole without any dissident factions, which, of course, is not always the case. One reason Netanyahu called the 2015 general election two years early was because he found the coalition formed after the 2013 election to be too cumbersome. It remains to be seen if the 2015 coalition, when it is eventually formed, will be any more dynamic. Given the complexities of Israel's post-election process, it becomes easier to understand why, even at moments of national crisis, building an effective governing coalition is often a time-consuming business, usually measured in weeks and even in months. This being so, it seems strange that the leader of the second-largest party, Isaac Herzog, the son of a former president, seemed to make a mistake when he phoned Netanyahu soon after the election to congratulate him on his victory. This was far too deferential a gesture in a highly charged political atmosphere which might portray such a move as a sign of weakness. Conceivably, Herzog was acting out of disappointment. The polls had shown his Zionist union, representing a merger of his Labour Party with another smaller party, still gradually increasing its strength and still ahead of Netanyahu's liquid. The public want change, Herzog said at an election night rally. Before any results were announced, we will do everything in our power, given the reality to reach this. 
In any case, I can tell you that there will be no decisions tonight. But he did make a decision that night to congratulate Netanyahu soon after widely circulated exit polls had been predicting a dead heat with Likud and Zionist Union both winning 27 Knesset seats. There were two other reasons why Herzog should not have anointed Netanyahu as the winner. One possibility, mooted in the event of a close finish, was the formation of a unity government in which both candidates would rotate the post of Prime Minister, each serving two years of the four-year term, much as Labour's Shimon Peres and Likud's Yitzhak Shamir did from 1984 to 1988. Holding back congratulations was also suggested by the fact that no lesser person than Israeli President Reuven Rivlin had clearly indicated before the election his preference for a government of national unity. Quote, I am convinced that only a unity government can prevent the disintegration of Israel's democracy and more new elections in the near future, unquote, Rivlin told the newspaper Haaretz. But there was one overriding reason why Herzog should have refrained from congratulating Netanyahu on his victory, which had been achieved at the last minute of the election campaign with a disgraceful and despicable display of demagoguery carefully aimed at energising extreme right-wing voters in Israel who might otherwise have refrained from voting. Suddenly, the London Economist reported, Netanyahu, the man known for his deep suspicion of journalists, opened up to anybody who would offer a microphone. NRG, a right-of-centre Israeli news website, was among the first to offer their microphone. Quote, I think that anyone who is going to establish a Palestinian state today and evacuate lands for it is giving attack grounds to the radical Islam against the state of Israel. There is a real threat here that a left-wing government will join the international community and follow its orders, unquote. Netanyahu said... All the details have not been reported of what appears to have been a well-organised liquid electronic and social media campaign to exploit basic Israeli fears of insecurity and isolation. But two main thrusts have become clear. First, Netanyahu made it appear that if Likud remained in power, it would never allow the creation of a Palestinian state. The creation of a two-state solution... Israel, with Palestine existing on what is now Israeli-occupied territory, has long been seen, especially by Israel's key ally, the United States, as the only solution which can bring peace. In 2009, Netanyahu belatedly made a speech at a university, giving his conditional support to it. Now he was seen to be repudiating that commitment. Second, during the actual voting on March the 17th, Netanyahu resorted to fear-mongering through a video placed on social media in which he asserted, quote, right-wing rule is in danger. Arab voters are streaming in huge numbers to the polling stations. This refrain was constantly repeated. As the New York Times quickly editorialized the same day, this outrageous appeal to hardline voters implied that only he could save Israel from its enemies, including the country's Arab citizens who represent 20% of the population and have long been discriminated against, unquote. 
What was actually happening on March the 17th was that four small Israeli-Arab political parties had joined together to promote a coalition. The Joint Arab List, it was called, which in itself encouraged more Israeli Arabs than usual to go out and vote. The Prime Minister, instead of praising this development, was treating it as a hostile move. The Joint Arab List eventually won 10.5% of the total vote and 13 Knesset seats. Was Netanyahu carried away by his own demagoguery? Did he forget normal Israeli political procedures? From March the 18th for the next 10 days, President Reuven Rivlin has been and will be meeting with the head of every political party to hear their detailed recommendations for Prime Minister and to decide himself who has the best prospects for forming a viable coalition. Now, as it happens, President Rivlin has emerged as a key advocate of Arab-Jewish rapprochement and coexistence. According to one Israeli press source, Rivlin meets regularly with Arab leaders, visits Arab-majority cities in Israel, and speaks passionately and frequently against displays on anti-Arab racism, which he has termed an Israeli disease. When he was previously Speaker of the Knesset, Rivlin routinely voted against bills he deemed anti-democratic and harmful to Israel's 20% of Arab citizens. Meanwhile, Netanyahu, faced with a barrage of mainly foreign, particularly American, criticism, has been very busy denying, explaining, apologizing, dismissing, and generally taking back his demagogic excesses, little realizing that as he does this, he further undermines his already diminished credibility. Whether these developments merely complicate Netanyahu's Whether these developments merely complicate Netanyahu's path to a continued premiership or cause President Rivlin to conclude that Netanyahu no longer has the best prospect of forming a cohesive Israeli coalition remains to be seen. More high drama lies ahead, especially if a nuclear limitation agreement in principle is finally attained between the six major powers in Iran as promised before the end of this month.